Good morning. It is indeed a pleasure and privilege for me to be able to stand here in front of folks with whom I've gone to church for many years. Claire's right. My wife and I have been members here 33 years. We were very, very young when we joined. <laughs> Some of the youngest ever, I think. At the 815 service, I joked with them, some people get attendance pins, I get to preach a sermon. So, <laughs> might you be so lucky someday. Our New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter, the first 14 verses. Let us hear now these words of our Lord spoken at the Last Supper. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thomas Torrance was both an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland and an esteemed professor of theology at the University of Edinburgh. Torrance, who died in 2007, also was a chaplain during the Second World War. And during his service as a chaplain, he encountered a mortally wounded young man, barely 20 years old, who asked Torrance the following question, Padre, is God really like Jesus? Like Philip in our passage today, Lord, show us the Father. <clears throat> this young man wanted to know what God is really like, for he knew that he was about to meet that God. Torrance assured him, saying, He is the only God that there is, the God who has come to us in Jesus, shone his face to us and poured out his love to us as our savior. And as Torrance prayed, the young man died. 
Oddly enough, a few years later, an elderly woman in Torrance's congregation asked him the same question. Dr. Torrance, is God really like Jesus? There seemed to be this sense there's th that there's this Jesus we meet in the Gospels, and then there's a God behind him who is somehow or somewhat different, maybe more austere, maybe less knowable, maybe less relatable, maybe even less loving. I mean, come on, which of the two images on our bulletin cover today do you really warm up to? Take a look if you haven't yet. Of course, we can't capture the majesty and the glory of the deity in a picture. And in fact, as you probably know, in the church for many years, there are arguments about whether we should even try, whether we should depict the deity in artwork. Well, we do. Um, <clears throat> but even there, even when we were able to paint Jesus the way you see him on the cover. That's the 17th century. Rembrandt painted that one, and he is credited with changing the face of Jesus from one of divine, inhuman perfection, one critic said, to one of human accessibility. Until his time, attempts to portray even Jesus, the God-man, as anything less than fully and perfectly divine were repressed. But enough about artwork and art history. The point is that like Philip, like the young soldier, like Torrance's elderly parishioner, every believer in any God at all wants to know what that God is like. Everyone wants to know their God, to see their God. After all, isn't a person's identity made visible in their face? Moses certainly wanted to see the glory of the gracious God who had forgiven his people's idolatrous behavior with the golden calf at Mount Sinai and the God who was now going to travel with them to the promised land. But God tells Moses he will not be able to see God's face. What Moses gets instead in the chapter that follows our reading from Exodus today is a verbal description of God's character. In Exodus 34, God proclaims to Moses that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses cannot see God, but he does get to hear God's self-description. But sometimes this divine self-description gets shouted down by the theological terms like the omnis. You know those, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, not to mention immutable, immense, and incomprehensible from our own Westminster Confession. Depictions of the Almighty, as you see in one of the pictures on our cover today, are quite simply Almighty. And we end up seeing the God who looks like that picture, the one from Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel ceiling. Now, don't get me wrong, all of these statements about God are true. Just as it is true, as we read in John 14, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He is the way to salvation. 
But this is where so many of my students, I expect their parents, probably a good number of us, this is where we stop when talking about Jesus. We restrict his mission to that of atoning for our sins and saving us to eternal life. Jesus came to die so that those who believe in him will not perish, but have, ever, have everlasting life. And as true as that is, and as eternally grateful as we are or should be for his selfless, selfless sacrifice on our behalf, we must not forget the rest of the conversation that takes place in the passage we read from John 14, verses 7 to 14, make it clear that Jesus came not only to die for our sins, but to show us the face of God. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us, says Philip. He wants to see God just as Moses did. But now God has come in the flesh to show us God. The disciples can see God and not die because God has become incarnate. God has become man. So the disciples and all of us get to know God through the person, words, and work of Jesus. The audible word that came to Moses has become the visible word. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus declares. And the disciples had seen quite a lot of Jesus, as we learn when we read the four Gospels. So when we search these Gospels, what do we see revealed of the Father in Jesus? First, we see a God who loves and cares for us as unique individuals. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us that God leaves the 99 sheep and goes after the lost one until he finds it. And when he does, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. That one in a hundred matters as much to God as the other 99. Jesus also shows us a God who is never too busy to give us personal attention. In Mark 5, while on his way to heal the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, a man named Jairus, Jesus was touched by a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Just touching his cloak did the trick. The healing was accomplished when she did that. But Jesus stopped to converse with her, to take time even as he was going to heal another. He took the time to speak with her and commend her for her faith. We also meet in Jesus, a God who cares both for our physical needs as well as our spiritual ones. The God whose face we see in Jesus cares about our whole being. In Mark 2, even before he heals the paralyzed man, Jesus does what only God can do. He forgives the man of his sins so that he can be right with God when he picks up his mat and walks. Next, we see in Jesus a God who loves us whatever our circumstances, caring especially for those for whom the world doesn't seem to care much at all. In Luke 4, Jesus' first act of public ministry is to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and release for the oppressed. 
And as I spoke about the last time that I got to come up here, and they actually let me do it again, yeah. Jesus shows us the face of a God who will help us when no one else will. In John 5, we read of the man at the pool of Bethesda who had been an, in, an invalid, as my students say when they read it, an invalid. <laughs> well, and as, as I spoke several months ago, they're both true. An invalid who had been treated as a nothing for 38 years. No one would help him get into the pool, which was believed to have healing power. But Jesus saw his need and healed him. So we see in Jesus a God who will help when no one else will. And finally, not really, of course, because God's love is infinite and knows no bounds, Jesus shows us a God who loves and cares for us even when we don't love or care for him. As he hung dying on the cross, Jesus forgave those who had conspired to kill him. He forgave the soldiers. He forgave the priests. He even forgave the ones he had come to save who had cried, crucify him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus says. The Father and I are one, Jesus also says. Like Father, like Son. Like Son, like Father. Together with the Holy Spirit, they show us a God who loves us as unique individuals, is never too busy to care for us, cares about the wellness of our entire being, loves us whatever our circumstances in poverty or in wealth, in sickness or in health, helps us when no one else seems to care and mercifully forgives us when we don't seem to care. Yes, the gospels allow us to see the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ and give us a definitive, affirmative answer to that dying soldier's question. Yes, God really is like Jesus. The Jesus who came not only to save us from the eternal consequences of our sin, but to show us God. But here's the catch, and they said they wouldn't pay me. They don't, I'd do this for free. Uh, I don't need to give you this to, become, uh, to get the big bucks. But there is a catch here. As fully God and fully man, Jesus not only shows us God, but also reflects perfect humanity. He is the mirror into which we should look and ask the following. Do I love my neighbor as a unique individual, or do I see her through the lens of a stereotype? Or am I too busy today to help my neighbor? Do I see my neighbor as a whole person, someone who needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, but who also needs food in his stomach, clothes for his body and a roof over his head? I think here of the founder of the Salvation Army who said, it's hard to hear the gospel on an empty stomach. We have to ask ourselves, do I love my neighbor whatever his circumstances, even when being with him or her may be way outside my comfort zone. In a couple of weeks, uh, six or so, uh, I will be taking all of our ninth graders for the 12th year 
uh, to Mission Waco. They're 14 and 15 years old. Uh, we stay there for five days. They lead worship at a homeless shelter. They work side by side with men in a halfway house. Uh, they encounter daily uh, people that are very much unlike them. And that's the point. And so we see in Jesus the face of God that loves us whatever our circumstances. Do we ourselves allow people to see that in us? Do I love my neighbor when he is ungrateful or hurtful or in so many other ways that we can think of unlovable? We have seen God's face in Jesus, but will others see God's face in us? The truth of the matter is that when we as Christians truly love another, they do see the face of God to borrow a line from the musical Les Miserables. To love another person is to see the face of God. And sometimes when they see that in us, they take time and tell us so and thank us. My dear friend Steve, known to others here very well, was diagnosed last year with multiple myeloma. And he has been through hell and a stem cell transplant in the time since. Yesterday was the 100th day since the transplant. That is a major benchmark in his treatment. And all signs are good, very good. And I can think of no better words with which to close my message today than those he recently posted on his CaringBridge site and which he has given me permission to share. Dear friends and family, my wife Martha and I love you. We appreciate your prayers, your offers of help, and your support. Knowing that you are there for us is profoundly comforting. It's clear to me that this challenge has not been all bad. I've seen the face of God in your love and care for us. There's more to experience and share about the hope that becomes real in a wilderness I did not choose. May the love of God, the grace made known through his only Son and our Savior, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest with us all. Onward and grateful, Martha and Steve. And I truly have no further or better words for you than that today. <laughs>